people together. Okay, we're working on it. It's a slow process. You, uh, you, uh get, getting your teeth into it? Yes. Shut up. <laughs> a triangle summons them for food, and they're joined by a bevy of young otters. Uh, and they're told, like, like, they're basically, they're all waking up. And, like, being, like, they're past, like, these carved bowls and spoons by this otter mom. And she's like, you better get over there soon or it's all going to be gone. And they do try to enjoy the soup, but it is, to an otter's taste, heavily seasoned with hot roots. The only one not suffering is Grum, who chugs it down and praises it happily. The otters are just as flabbergasted as Grum's friends are at his ability to chug the soup down. Even they couldn't feast on it like that without scupper juice to cool their throats. Like, it's it's the 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 uh, shrimp and hot root soup, and they've got, like, uh, like, baked bread and this thing called scupper juice to help, like, cool their throats with it. And Grum is just like, give me your soup and I'll give you my scupper juice and bread. And they, they're just, they trade. They're like, we can't mm-hmm. eat this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I posted a little image from um, Jay Eaton is a comic artist who does amazing, wonderful, speculative biology. And uh, they have an entire comic where these these aliens are sharing a spaceship with humans. And this one human is cooking with onions. And this poor alien runs by going, with tears flowing from their eyes, going, why would you cook something or eat something that attacks you? Yeah. Listen. And then later in that comic, they learn that Talita, the giant centaur alien... Her eyes use oil, not water, to lubricate themselves. So the sulfurs and onions don't affect her. So she's given the job to peel onions and she's like, or to like shred the onions. And she's like, you're making me work for food I can't eat. Yeah, because she can't eat onions. It's very funny. She can't, she can't eat anything that is not from her home planet. Mm -hmm. They're, uh, Talita species is highly specialized. Yeah, they're carnivores. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, full stop. I think there's, like, some proteins that they can digest from meat, like, earth meat, but it's gotta be processed extremely heavily. And there's synthetic that utilizes similar stuff that that she can eat. But again, it's all heavily processed stuff. So when she gets things that are actually from her home world, it's like, ah, yes, delicious. Like, like the weird little silk balls. Yeah. Which I'm just fascinated by. Like the the version of like Talita, like the aliens, they do they do raise livestock. Like they used to be a hunting species, but when they became more civilized, they started raising livestock because why chase it if we can just farm it? Mm-hmm. And uh, their their world is more like insectoid mammalian than mammalian or reptile mammalian or avian and so on. But Talita and... also kind of comes a little bit from the what if horses were predators. Yes, like that. Uh, that very much so. That that species is very much kind of derived from the "What if horses were predators?" I mean, she's literally a centaur. She is. So. She is. Um, it's very good. But like they they make what I I think the te- texture was described as being a bit like mozzarella, a bit like string cheese. But they make it out of silk, like silk extruded from other creatures on their planet. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Let's anyway. not get on too big of a t- tangent, but yes. Yeah. So, uh, the group of friends learn about stream sailing very eagerly, with Grum and Palum even adopting the otter's gait and slang. They they completely just kind of leave aside the fact that both of them are terrified of water. <laughs> They're just having fun, man. They're having a fun time. Uh, and the otters tell them that they'll be meeting the shrews around mid-evening. Until then, they enjoy an idyllic day on the stream. And sure enough, as the sun settles along the horizon... They hear the squabbling of many small creatures. One otter laments that the shrews never stop arguing, having seen one jump into the stream and get back out in an argument over who was wetter. Uh, Wait, I just realized, though, why this is happening. Why the shrews are arguing this much. This is before the Guosam. They're not even in the right area for the Guosam. Right, which is why they're arguing. They don't have that unifying factor. Yeah. Uh, regardless, they move to attack uh, to the shore to meet them, Palam and Grum trying to copy the lingo of the otters as they do, including trying to do a footpaw salute, which I believe involves the otters uh, having to partially balance on their tails 
And Palom ah. and Grom can't do that. Yeah. Uh, once ashore, they find themselves surrounded by the quarrelsome, quarrelsome little creatures. Boldred laments their lack of a leader and how this leads to their constant quarrels. And indeed, we hear them argue over if they even want to go out in their log boats at all. Okay. So, all right. Okay. I'm not sailing tonight. We've been on the stream all day. I want to sail tonight. It's the best time for voyaging. We've done enough. I say we don't sail for the rest of the season. Who asked you? Keep your opinions to yourself, Rushmouth. Ha! Rushmouth, is it? Well, when was the last time you put paw to paddle, boat bottom? Boat bottom yourself. I vote we run the log boats ashore and careen them. The holes are filthy with moss. A good voyage will take the moss off him. You take my word. I won't take your word, but you'll take the back of my paw if you step on my tail again. Just, please. Like, it's, it's very, okay, I'll admit, the arguments are funny. He does write them in a very amusing manner. The show arguments just, have always been entertaining in that way. Yeah. But this it, is... It feels like they're a bunch of, like, they know each other so well. That they, they can squabble like this and not have hard feelings. Yeah. Rather than in some cases with the Guosam where, like, bad shit starts happening. And it's like, y'all good? The answer is no. God. Alright. So, Grum reports that one reason for their cross attitude may be the fact that the shrew food is horrible. Like, he went through and he was, like, tasting everything. He was like, ugh, this is bad. Uh, so Rose has an idea and gets out Grum's invention cakes. The others begin eating and praising it until one shrew boldly demands some. Marn rebukes him and Rose scolds as well. Hadn't his mother taught him to say please? The shrew is stunned for a moment before humbly asking for some cake. Still, they hold out. And Boldred has her say, creatures afraid to sail at night don't deserve cakes. This causes the fights to start up all over again. And the lead otter bounds into it, declaring his friends were brave stream creatures indeed. They would sail the waters without fear. Rose mimics a shrew, like, just kind of to the side, saying that if they give them the cakes, it's a bargain. And the shrews agree. This is potentially one of the most unkind depictions of river shrews that we've seen. And I am not sure how I feel about it. Like, we know that shrews were quarrelsome, but this feels unkind in a way that we the, haven't seen with the shrews before the shrews in this book are treated more like a mass than they are individuals yeah it feels and, bad yeah it's just very eh. very weird because like it, i mentioned it but it feels like brian just put the shrews in because people expected to see shrews at yeah. this point yeah it does feel like we don't even get any of their names like none of them no, none of them get named. Nope, they're just shrews. Uh, Boldred tosses the cakes into a longboat, saying they'd struck a hard bargain. The shrews swarm to their boats, and the travelers only just having time to wave goodbye to the otters. Uh, Boldred actually has to uh, take to the air to avoid being swept into the boats with everyone else. Rose is jubilant as they move downstream. She recognizes these waters now. In fact, if they take a turn soon, they'll take a side stream and be at Noonvale by next afternoon. Sure enough, they do turn, and Rose points out landmarks. She's almost home. Like, her joy is so well felt in this moment. It is really well done. I mean, like, I... It's such a genuine feeling, though. Like, when you've been away a long time from home, and then you start to smell those familiar smells, you see those familiar sights, like, even, like... It's, it might sound stupid, but like even the air feels right. Yeah. You know, you feel that joy. Um, you know, it's it's just something that's so visceral when you finally get back to the place that is home. Yeah, it's a thing that I feel whenever I visit Florida, which I can't do anymore because uh, my existence is illegal there. Yeah. Uh, but whenever I visit Florida, um, that's how I feel because like, being near the ocean feels like home. The smell of the ocean, the way the air feels, like, it feels like home. And even visiting, like, my old hometown to visit my mom, there's just a way that it, even if things have changed, it feels like home. It smells mm-hmm. like home. It's home. Because you grew up in that place. 
So yeah. Uh, back at Marshank, by evening, Clog has finished filling in the prison pit. He lays himself down into the wheelbarrow he'd been using, kicks off his clogs, and laments how Badrang uh, was no doubt feasting. Still, he thinks he has it better than the wall guards, uh, doubly so when he sees them dropped by slung stones. He catches on that it's the former slaves, and seeing as he's a slave now too, he keeps quiet. No, no <laughs> need to tell them what's going on. That's not his job. I love it. He's oh, so, so petty now. It's so good. His pettiness. Like, it's so delicious. Oh, yes. Just like very much uh, Badrang's chickens are coming home to roost. And because Clog is a villain, he's allowed to be petty like this. Like, you're not like when you're a Christian, you're definitely not supposed to be petty like this. But since Clog isn't a Christian or any kind of a good guy, he's allowed to be. And it's a delight to read because he he is the the retribution of Bad Rang's bad behavior coming around to bite him in the butt. It's extremely good. It is extremely good. So Because if if he had not done this to Clog, like if, if he had accepted that, you know, Clog's little fib of like, I was defending the fortress, Clog would absolutely be hollering to like, hey, 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 like we're getting attacked. Like Clog would have been down to defend this place. But now that he is no longer a defender, he is a slave. Why should he? Why, why should he feel like he, he needs to defend this place? They mm-hmm. did nothing for him. Mm-hmm. They just, you know, made him fill in a prison pit and treating him like shit. So if they get what's the coming to them. Yeah. Uh, fire javelins come next. He is not in the target area. So he just watches curiously as the majority hit the longhouse. Outside, the battle cry of fur and freedom is cheered. And Badring comes just fucking stomping out, and he accidentally steps on a smoldering lance, and his charge changes to hops of pain as he barks orders. He grabs a couple beasts, ordering them to put out the fires. When they protest that they don't have water, he clonks their heads together and scolds them. Use dirt, stones, smother it. And we, and we loop back to how to properly put out a fire. You know, that conversation we had last time. <laughs> yep, it's, it's, it's all coming together. It's a circle. <laughs> time is a circle. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, God. All right. Uh, this next bit, we have, like, no notes. Because the scenes were just so, like, this next bit, the scenes are so well written and snappy. That it's, like, no notes. A plus. 10 out of 10. Um, yep. No then, complaints, nothing but praise. Yep. Bala and Feldo put out the fire they'd been using and split their forces. Bala to the back, Feldo to the left. Feldo and his crew lay themselves flat, and Feldo reminds them to wait until Bala's group attacks to launch their own javelins. Badring and crew look out over the deserted beast. He chances an arrow volley at some rocks to no effect. He hears the javelins and ducks out of reflex, yelling out a warning, but not in time. Three beasts fall to the slung sticks. He catches uh, he catches on that they're attacking from the back. Feldo's crew wait for the perfect moment and hit the horde for a few more injuries and casualties before blending back into the landscape. Badring leaves some archers to fire at Feldo's group, going uh, to the back to squint into the apparently deserted marshes. He curses the former slaves. One beast, Boggs, keener-eyed than the rest, Boggs is also uh, originally from Clog's group, uh, says, because it, uh, it's pointed out that he used to be a, uh, sit in the crow's nest, nah. uh, says he sees six, no, five creatures coming out of the marsh. Badrin grabs a bow and orders the keen-eyed Boggs to take one as well and stay low. Let them get a little closer. Of course, it's Hisk and his group. Mud-covered and worn out, they're all too happy to see the fortress. They break into a jog, cheering happily. To Badrang, though, it looks like a charge from the enemy. He prepares to fire. Bala's crew uh, strikes from the right, causing some chaos among the archers peppering Feldo's group. One beast of Feldo's group jumps up in triumph, then takes an arrow to the chest. When his friend, Yarrow the Mouse, leaps up to alert them, he is tackled low by Kayla. He still gets an arrow to the paw. Feldo is quick to give orders. Get the injured out of there. Keep low. Time to skedaddle. 
background to the back, the five returning beasts are slain quickly with arrows, Badrang wishing it was daytime so he could see the faces of what he'd thought were slaves. Just the fucking payoff. That is so beautiful. Beautiful. Well done, well written. Brian knocks it out of the park with this sequence. This is one of the sequences in this book where it's like, yes, this book deserves to be people's favorites if he, you know, when he writes to this quality. Yeah. Now, if only he wrote to this quality all the time. Yeah, but hey, he cranked out a lot of books. Sometimes you just don't have the energy for it. Even my favorite authors release duds once in a while. Yeah, looks at Stephen King. Looks at Mercedes Lackey and Beauty and the Werewolf. What the fuck was that, Lackey? <laughs> Looks at Anne McCaffrey. Oh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> the whole Acorna series. So weird. Space unicorn people. Yeah. Listen, be nice. She was doing her best. <laughs> she was, and for the time she was doing it, she was definitely helping progress women in science fiction, and I will stand by that. Oh yeah, no, absolutely. But like <laughs> nowadays, like some of the stuff in there, like it's it's like Rocky Horror Picture Show, right? Yeah, exactly. With, watching it through a lens of today, it's uh, yeah. But for its time, it was so important because mm-hmm. it was all we had. Exactly. And it was something that no one had dared to do before, and also people should be allowed to write messy right it's like exactly. the, it's like the my gender is an attack helicopter short story <laughs> which had to be taken down like the author took it down from the uh, from online and actually uh felt the need to start detransitioning which i do not hold that against them hmm. because of the harassment they were receiving about this incredible piece of work yeah let people in minority groups write messy things because there is no they've got no other examples and there is They're no all-encompassing experience that piece of a uh, short fiction is so important to me because of the way that it describes gender and how you interact with it and it is just Oh, it is mwah, chef's kiss. If you can find a copy of it, because there are copies that get passed around. I think I have a copy saved somewhere. Read it. It is well worth the read. And you have to remember this was written by a queer person about their own experiences and their own takeaways from things. This is not meant to be emblematic of everyone. This is a particular experience. It's so good. Uh-huh. Brian has no excuse. <laughs> he's got some excuse but like there's some things where it's just like my guy what the fuck (laughs) um so Bilal and Feldo meet back up Bilal is in a very good mood until Feldo reports the death of a beast and the injury of Yarrow so they hasten back to camp it's Yarrow not Yarrow because Yarrow root the the person who died also their name was Juniper they were named Yes, I was just busy getting yeah, this yeah, written yeah. because I didn't realize I'd have as much time. Yeah, no, I... you're good. That morning, Badrang looks at the five of his beasts slain by his own paw. He mocks Boggs for his keen eye, but also admits he himself would have mistaken them for enemies with as covered in mud as they were. He almost slays Boggs, but turns his hand aside and barks out for them to get clogged to dig five graves to keep him busy. Um... Just, I, I enjoy a villain who spares his crew and acts mm-hmm. smart because like if this had been like if this had been Slagar or um heck blue eyes blue eyes white weasel um <laughs> uh, oh how quickly I forget people's names I apologize everyone what's um, his face from Marion Gabool if it had been yeah, Gabool dead immediately yeah, dead but no he's like I have limited resources I need to value my men you you live today yep because, like, Boggs fucking saw them. He was able to count them. And, like, in the dark, it was extremely hard. So, you know, he's mm-hmm. got credit there. He's useful. Mm-hmm. Um, in the freed slave camp, uh, Roanoke stands over the new grave. Brome bandages Yarrow's paw, and Yarrow knows that he will heal, not like his slain friend. Brome comforts him. They can, say, they can go say goodbye to his friend. A small funeral is held, kind words are said, and the ceremony is over. 
Afterwards, Brome pulls Feldo aside, calling him out on how his words over the funeral hadn't been a goodbye, but an oath of revenge. How many more must die to make him happy? Feldo says as many as it takes, himself included. He won't rest until Badrang is dead and Marshank is destroyed. And as he walks away, Castern tries to soothe Brome. Feldo must feel guilt. And Brome says no, Feldo is no longer his hero. Now he is a strange and dangerous beast. Uh, Castern again tries to divert him. Feldo is simply a warrior like Martin was. Brome hopes not, otherwise he fears for his sister. And, like, here's Brian kind of, like, pointing out, like, there's re- there's protecting people and then there's revenge. Mm-hmm. And Feldo is falling into that obsession of, like, I want to destroy this evil and it's consuming him. It's turning him from the good creature he was into something that is so laser focused he doesn't really see or care who gets hurt alongside him. Hey, this is Kit editing the audio. We're going to have some endgame spoilers for Animorphs, so if you haven't read the last two books, you're going to want to skip ahead about three minutes now. Uh, almost like a certain uh, character in Animorphs. In something, something. I have Animorphs brain rot and Brome has Cassie vibes. <laughs> Brome has Cassie vibes and Feldo has, you know. Jake vibes. Yeah. But, like, not quite, because, like, a little bit of Jake, a little bit of Marco. Yeah, and a lot of Rachel. And uh, a lot of Rachel. But there's a little bit here as well with kind of what I was thinking, like, um, what I, like, after reading 54, what this makes me think of now is uh, when Jake flushes 17,000 yurks into space. Reminder for those who have not read Animorphs and don't know the series. Yurks are sentient beings. Yes, they look like slugs, but they are as intelligent They're and sapient. as capable of emotions. Yeah. Intelligent and as capable of emotions as you and I. In fact, some of them were even fighting towards a peace movement. God knows how many of the peace movement Yurks he killed then, too, mm-hmm. if you think about it. And it's pointed out in the book, like, when he did that, because he has a lot of mixed feelings about it. When he did that, he wasn't thinking, like in a way that he could absolve himself of us. He, w- he was thinking of revenge. He was thinking these are filthy, dirty yurks and they need to all die. Mm-hmm. You know? Because by is... that point, he'd seen so much death, so much pain. You, you know, you, the human brain does snap after a certain point. Yeah, and, and this was after he was accused of being a war criminal by Visser One's def- lawyers. <laughs> yeah. So, and to I would not to have Wall, wanted to be those lawyers. <laughs> God, no. Um, But to loop back to Redwall, like, this is kind of what's happening to Feldo. He spent so much of his life in this pain, in this slavery, that he is like, no, absolutely not. Not Until, like, this threat of slavery is removed, I am not leaving. Which, you know, valid. Very valid. Slavery should not be tolerated, ever, in any case. Um, And, you know, like, I know that, um, like... A bunch of people in the Animorphs server argue about that quite a lot of like, so what if those Yurks want peace? They are still benefiting from, you know, the slavery. And here you also have like the creatures of Marshank are benefiting from enslaving other living, thinking creatures. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like his his anger is hurting others, but you can 100% see where he is coming from. As sad as it is, because we know it is going to end up hurting him so deeply. Uh, Revenge and war is a tragedy. And even if you have to fight to protect others, there is a price to be paid. Speaking of Brome's sister, the group has left the shrews behind. Um, We got very little time with the shrews and now they're gone. Whee! Yeah. The check mark, the, the box has been checked off. Yep. Um, they enter into what feels to be an enchanted forest. It's as old as old, old growth can be. The fern and flower-covered ground fed by golden shafts of sun. Rose pauses at an ancient conical rock and Martin asks what it is. She points downward. Noonvale. The village is as picturesque as Rose had described. Little thatched roofs hidden among gardens and orchards. Clear water flowing in streams. Boldred calls out from above that she'll meet them below, and the four friends take off down the slope. 
Like the way Brian describes this place, I can smell it. Same. You know, just I can smell it. I can feel the way the air would be so cool under those leaves. Just, oh. It's so good. We meet, go. same. we meet Rosa's parents, Euron Vo, an all-gray mouse with a beard, and Arya, a motherly figure from top to bottom. They greet her happily, asking about Brome. Is he following behind? Her heart sinks. Brome and Feldo hadn't made it back. She tries to tell her story, but Euron Vo cuts her off. He's not worried about Brome. The story will come in good time. Instead, he greets Grum and asks him to introduce Martin and Palum. Arya cuts the introduction short, though bustling the four off to wash up. She's to prepare a welcoming party for them all. A little bit of this kind of feels odd, but in that way where it's like, we know what has happened and they don't, they don't have the same concerns that this party has. Mm -hmm. And they're all kind of swept up in it. So it's kind mm -hmm. of like us as the readers are sitting here like, ah, <laughs> you have something you are supposed to be doing. <laughs> I have something to tell you. Yeah. Uh, they meet at the council lodge, and Martin is shy, but Rose urges him forward to bow and accept the greetings of the people of Noonvale. They cheer, share a welcome, and the feast begins. And now, the sentence that tore my heart in half. In later years, Martin keeps the memory of the party tucked deep inside his heart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It's like, no wonder Redwall gets such a tradition of feasts. Because this is one of the few times in his life he just gets to genuinely be happy. Yep. Suffering. Someone Suffering. give this mouse a break. He doesn't get one until a long time later. And even then he has to keep coming back to help people. Yep. He doesn't get to rest. Anyway, uh, the table is festooned with flowers and overflowing with good food and drink. He has pride of place sitting with Rose and her parents. Grum is sitting with a nephew of his, while Pelham is gently flirted with by a hedgemane named Teaselpaw. This entire, like, all of this feels very much like they found paradise uh, with, like, how the valley is described, how this party is playing out. It feels like a dream. And it's, it's like it's not an uncommon motif or moment in mythology and storytelling because it's like you, you've already gone through so much. And it's like I mentioned earlier, you need a minute to catch your breath, a safe haven to settle your heart and to keep your will strong. You have to remember what you are fighting for. Yeah. Uh, and the large bouldred, too large to fit at the table, is given a very nice window to sit in. And she impresses young critters with her ability to tuck away food. Like she's eating like an entire like cake or pie or something. And they're like, how many of those could you eat? And she's like, oh, I could eat at least four. No problem. And they're like, oh. And see, in this case, it's cute because she is so much bigger than them. She's an owl. She's huge compared to them. So, of course, she can tuck food away. You know, she's got a bird's, a bird's metabolism and a bigger stomach. But also we have another owl with a sweet tooth. <laughs> another owl with a sweet tooth. Why do you, Brian, why do you keep hurting me this way? I mean, technically none of them should be eating this much sugar. I mean, it's not processed sugar though. But it's still a lot of sugar. But, like, here's the thing. So yeah. when I owned rats, there was so much that was like, do not feed them a lot of fruit. Mm. <laughs> it has too much, un it has too much sugar in it just in general. They're not supposed to eat that much sugar. Yeah. So it's just kind of an in general, like, nobody's supposed to eat that much sugar. <laughs> Even us. Even us. Um, so the party carries on into the evening. Rose uses the distraction of an otter acrobatics show to slip away with Martin to her parents' cottage. Uh, and there, Uranvo and Arya listen to their tale. And... I I don't like that, like, immediately Arya sits down and starts embroidering, like, the, the oh, this is like a medieval-based story, just comes up, jumps up and smacks you in the face right here, mm -hmm. and I don't like it. It feels weird. It didn't read that weird to me, but because, like, I have to do something with my hands when I'm listening to people talk, that's a me thing, you know? Mm-hmm. But e even then... 
I don't like it because it's it's like it's she's the power behind the father. Like it's very quickly emphasized that like without her, um, like she helps guide and not control him, but just help guide him, be the mm. voice of reason. And like it is the medieval trope. It's the classic medieval trope. I still don't like it. Yeah, which is totally fair. Uh, Martin lets Rose speak, and while she tells of Marshank, her parents' moods darken, but instead of wanting the help, they condemn the world outside. And Martin makes his plea that Noonvale is indeed a haven. Could Euron Vo still allow him to ask for help from his creatures? And I like this. That there's more commentary to be had with this bit, but I like this particularly. Martin doesn't ask Euron Vo to help. He asks Euron Vo if he can ask the creatures on an individual level for their help. Taking that sort of overarching decision away from him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very smart. But it also shows how much Martin considers people's, like, individual freedoms. Mm-hmm. It's just like, yes, I respect that you have this place, but some people still have that need to fight. They still they are the defenders. They are the ones who are willing to go out there. Or they'll want to help in any way that they can, you know? Mm-hmm. And Aronvo counters that uh, Noonville creatures strive for peace. Um, if you want to read your comment on this bit. Yeah, and like it still feels different from Redwall because it's it's similar but different. Martin adding in his willingness of like we want peace above all else, but if we must fight, we will. Yeah, and my I responded to that with passivity is still a choice. Like a lot of people when they're doing these like uh uh like what side are you on and you choose not to take a side, that passivity is a choice. You are still making choosing not to choose is a choice, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, it's, that's it's, an important thing having, to consider. It's having the luxury of being able to choose passivity. Yeah. Being a pacifist is a luxury, and I'm going to be blunt yes. about that. It is a luxury. Um, it, and not a lot of people have that luxury. Mm-hmm. Uh, Arya counters back, is it not alright to let Martin at least ask? You know, Arya is very much on Martin's side on this, like, he should be allowed to ask people on an individual level, right? And Mm -hmm. so, Euronvo allows it, but asks Martin to hand over his sword and go unarmed. Martin apologizes and says no. Arya, though, finds a good compromise. Martin can hang his sword by the door, and none will take it. Like, she says, I, I give you this place to put your sword by it's the door. It's a really good compromise. Yeah, actually, hold on. Let's find it in the book, because I want to read it. It's really good. Yeah. It's very well done. Yeah. All right, so here it is. I see that you carry a blade. We do not have such things here. For the time you are with us, you must not stay armed. Give me your sword, Martin. The young mouse placed a defensive paw on his sword handle. I am sorry, sir. I cannot do what you ask. Euron Vo's eyes were stern in the awkward silence that followed. Arya intervened between the patriarch and the warrior. Martin, I know my husband's feelings, but I think I also know yours, too. You have seen suffering and evil in your life. There is none of that to be found in Noonvale. Would you do something for me? I am not asking you to give your sword to Euron. Take it and hang it on the peg by the door. Do this yourself, and no one else will touch your blade. Without a word, Martin drew his sword. Going over to the door, he hung the weapon upon a peg protruding from the wall, balancing it by the hilt. It hung there, small and lonely-looking. The young mouse could not help thinking of his father's blade, big and worn, but a proper warrior's weapon, now in the paws of the tyrant. He would take it back some day, Somehow. Like, that bit where she puts, she's like, make this choice yourself. Euronvo demands this of him, but Arya asks him to make this choice himself. Mm -hmm. To choose to be peaceful in this area. To choose to show himself as peaceful in this place. And none will take his weapon from him. 
I also think like one, this is like finally Martin getting acknowledged as like his his weapon is finally getting respected because like every time we've seen it taken away from him again and again and again. Um and then finally here he has someone saying, like, I respect that you have this weapon, you need it, and you know, I'm not gonna take it. And then he chooses to respect them back by putting it where they offered. Yeah. It's also Brian emphasizing the difference between Martin the warrior and Feldo the warrior who wants revenge. Mm -hmm. It's a really good moment. I wish we had, we got more characters like Arya and we do typically, but typically they're Arya. Arya feels very much like a badger mum in this situation. Like the way that Brian normally writes badgers. Right. She's the peacekeeper. She's willing to exert her authority. She's the matriarch and the badger Mm -hmm. mums we typically see are the matriarchs of Redwall. They're the mothers of Redwall. Arya has that same position and she's able to find that compromise. So Rose offers to show Martin where he'll sleep, but at a sharp glance from Uran Vo, Arya once more intercedes, saying she'll do so or Rose will keep him up half the night talking. Um, Uran Vo warns his daughter of getting too close to Martin. He knows warriors. He knows death walks alongside Martin. Rose tries to brush it off. She trusts Martin, and she trusts that once this is over, she can change him into a peaceful creature. Oh, it's just so gross. I don't like it. I don't like it. I can change him, Daddy. I love him. Like, Martin's a bad boy in an 80s sitcom. Right. It's just like, all of a sudden, it's like, Rose has become a completely different character. Like, that, that sensible leader type that we have known is gone because she's in safety where she doesn't have to make the decisions anymore yeah she can be a kid again i guess and i just i don't like it it feels gross the the worst thing though about this bit is like he does eventually become peaceful what happens to rose (laughs) well i mean my theory is is that either she or brahm has a kid because of the narrator we have who's telling this story but she clearly doesn't have one with martin Unless, uh, mm. uh. I, I don't, I don't, I don't think Brian would write uh, out of wedlock. No, I don't think so either. Um, so Aranvo sighs, saying she and her brother were both stubborn. He just wishes this would turn out to be true. She sends him off to bed, though, confident in her words. Feldo is keeping himself busy in the evening twilight. He has hidden caches of javelins all around Marshank. He has slain two sentries, with a bonus slain inside, and three more wounded. Uh, Clug gripes that there's just more graves to be dug tomorrow while he is hiding under his wheelbarrow. (laughs) I know! I loved that bit where he's just under his wheelbarrow and he's just like, oh god. Uh, He's just like, well... What were you about to say? No, he's just like, Welp, this yep. is my life now. Uh, if waits... Record scratch. I think you're wondering how I got into this. God. <laughs> if he waits long enough, he may just get Marshank by default of being the only one alive. Uh, in the charred longhouse, Badrang gives vent to his temper. He's stuck inside, and none of his captains have the wit to really help him. After a few exchange words, he chases them all out with his blade. Like, he's getting this bit where he's just, he's frustrated, he's angry, and we get this reference where he's not getting a lot of sleep either. So we're starting Mm -hmm. to see that breakdown of the leader, because, like, he doesn't have that support network to help him, because he doesn't Mm -hmm. trust any of these people properly, right? That's the biggest thing that has this, the breakdown of, of command with the vermin is that the leader is always the sole one to make decisions. He doesn't ever have like a, a, a war council essentially. Right. He's, he's surrounded by yes men or men who would happily stab him in the back. Yeah. There's, he doesn't like, there's no trust here. Uh, outside Feldo hears the kerfuffle and with his keen ears, he launches a couple javelins in the direction of the fuss. Uh, Lumpback the weasel catches the first one with his body, and the second one nearly takes Badrang through the charred wood of the longhouse. Like, it's like, the point is, like, right between his eyes. Like, he's staring cross-eyed at it. Yeah. Like, this, this, we don't have a lot of notes on this scene, because, like, Feldo just does a really good job of being freaking terrifying. Yeah. Um... 
the the way that the bit with the the uh, javelin almost getting a uh, bad rang between the eyes is like such a perfect like that would be so well done in like an animated scene. I can see it in my head. Yeah, like, I can. Also I can just see it. See it. Um. So, uh, bad rang bellows out in a rage to be mockingly replied to by Feldo. He calls the tyrant a coward. Bad rang shrieks back, still caught in a rage and. Zeroed in on his voice, Feldo launches three more javelins, and they thunk into the wood around and above Badrang, who cowers under his chair. The stoat calls out that he'd missed. Feldo calls back that he's got all night to practice, and Badrang better not sleep. And of course, he leaves, with Badrang caught in a trap of worry. It makes me think of that one little comic of, like, Little Red Riding Hood being like, Ah, I've made it home again tonight. I don't have to fear the wolf. But the wolf says, you have to make it home safe every night. I only need to catch you once. Mm-hmm. Clog sees Feldo's shadow slip away like he's peeking out through the gate. He sees Feldo leave and he chuckles quietly and heads to sleep. He won't bother telling Badrang that it's only one creature. Clog so being petty. a petty bitch. I love it. It is so good. Like he could be helping, but instead he's just making more problems for Badrang. He's like, ha fuck you. Um, Bala, of course, sees that the camp spirits are low and joins his main crew to pep talk them. They're to put on a show for the others and lift their spirits. The show is tonight. And it works. Like, we get this, like, little bit of a skip. We just to everybody is laughing at them, letting themselves forget their worries for a bit. The actors have set up a beast pyramid with Buckler at the top. Through Bala's narration, paints him as Malcolm the Magnificent Diving Mole, who will dive into what appears to be a wet washcloth. And he sings a little ditty, replied to by Selendine. Oi, be ready and willing to die, and my wages be a custard pie. Oh, dive, my loved one, my dear, I have your wages here. And then Roanoke, well, hurry up, my back's killing me. <laughs> and Bala, do not worry, madame, your face has been killing me for years, let alone your back. Keep quiet, still now. Malcolm, are you ready? <laughs> I'd be ready to die from the skirt I place onto e damp cloth. Bella, we will not be responsible for small infants and nervous folk who faint during this death-defying performance. And Fuffle uh, pulls on Roanoke's tail. Ho, oh, get on with it! And Roanoke just does like this yeah! whole big yell, stands up, everybody falls. It's so funny. Um... Uh, so it sends the whole pyramid tumbling. Buckler saves it, though, by popping up with the washcloth, like, on his nose, pretending to be afraid of drowning. He's, like, uh, swimming on the on the ground. Um, I did it! I did it! Oh, help some beast before I drowns! I can't swim! I can't swim! And Selendine, oh, save him, someone! Don't let poor Malcolm drown before he's at his custard pie! And there's this is a whole comedy of errors routine that's so good, which ends up with the pie on top of Buckler's head, uh, who finishes the act with one more cheeky <laughs> rhyme. You're M.I. Malcolm, completely disgusted. Stood of water, I've been drowned in custard. I love that they made the rhyme work with mole speak. That is so it's fucking good. Very good. Um... Feldo appears at the edge of the performance, sitting down next to his father. Bark John asks where he's been, and he says that he's been here the whole time. Uh, Feldo tries to change the subject, uh, but Bark John isn't deflected. He wonders what Feldo's been up to. Uh, the act, meanwhile, has Brome banging a drum, and Bala mishearing everything he says. Bala then tricks Brome into cutting the drum, then to his dismay, learns it's his drum after all. Uh, it's more comedy of error stuff that's extremely funny. Uh, with the act over, everyone begins to gather for bed. Groot wishes Feldo a good night and is happy to see him smiling again. Feldo says it's been a good night overall. Brome, though, smells something fishy. He consults with Kayla and Tolgru, and they both agree. Feldo has been far too smug and happy this night. So tomorrow, they'll follow him- they'll all follow him to see what he's about. And the night is calm, is a calm one for the camp, with all but a scheming Feldo safely asleep. Woof! <laughs> yeah. What is Feldo cooking up in that brain of his? Who knows? Oh, We're this gonna find book, out. Th it's like this section 
I feel like this section had more of the highs and less of the lows Mm -hmm. this time around. Yeah. Mainly because we only get the squirrels for like the front half of it. And then the rest of it focuses back in on like the character, like Martin and company finally get to Noonvale. And then we have like the Fern Freedom Fighters who are starting their guerrilla war against Marshank. The the book is picking up and we're going to get into um, like there's the next, the next recording is just going to be like, it's going to be Martin trying to convince people. There's going to be like a bunch of fighting. I'm calling it now. Feldo's either going to get severely injured or die. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember how the book ends. <laughs> um, tune in next week. <laughs> ah. So our no, we like tune in next month. God, yeah, no, we've been. Uh, it's not that we've been struggling. It's just kind of we've both been busy. Um. And, like, I have just recently managed to pull myself out of a kind of funk. Because, you know, the weather is changing. When it gets warmer, I start kind of tanking in terms of, like, my emotions and stuff. Because I don't like warm. My body hates it. Uh, and it's just shenanigans. So, you know, we're trying. I'm trying to keep myself, like, amped up. Um, yeah. So our questions. What was your favorite weird food so far in this book? And like this bit, like nothing particularly jumped out at me. So I really would like to try some of those cherry cordials. Same, yeah. There was nothing really weird food wise. Like I still want to try those inventive honey cakes. They sound delicious. Mm -hmm. Um, and Ben did try to make them. I think we mentioned that last time. Uh, Ben did try to make them, and he said that they were crumbly and incredibly sticky. So he did something wrong. (laughs) Well, he said if he put any more honey in them, they would have stuck to the pan. Yeah. Which so is that true. Makes me think cooking, that, it... like, cooking with honey is actually a lot harder than people think it is. Honey is a yeah. very bizarre liquid. Something. What What it makes me think is that maybe the cakes would have had to have been made first and then soaked mm. in honey and then baked in a very low heat to crystallize it. That's yeah. That would like, make a good like amount of if sense. you make if you basically make uh, griddle cakes right. Not necessarily pancakes, but something that you put on a flat, like, flat top. You can make them on a stone, a flat piece of metal, whatever the fuck. Make something like a flat cake, right? Mm-hmm. Soak them in honey, and then Dutch oven them in the coals. Oh. Um, it, it does also make me think of how um, the one time my grandmother and I, we tried to make banana bread where we substituted all of the sugar with honey. Oh, that makes it super dense. It wasn't, well, it's not so much that it was dense. It was like, it was spongy, but it was so moist because all of the honey, it just like, it it just had this weird, not unpleasant, but weird texture and was so moist. Yeah. The crystallization of honey is different than the crystallization of regular sugar. So it, Mm -hmm. it interacts with ingredients differently. So I like to replace part of the sugar that I put in brownies with honey and it has a tendency to make them, it makes them moist, but it can make brownies really dense. Mm hmm. Um, so that's Which why I don't some people do, do like, yeah, it's why I don't do a full replacement because if I do a full replacement for me, it's too dense and they don't bake the way that I want them to. Right. Yeah. They take longer to bake, but if I am not careful, they get dry. Ooh, this is a um, dangerous conversation to have when we're both hungry and ready for lunch. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, honey is a good thing to replace, but you've got to do experiments with it because it is yep. weird. Was there an animal that appeared that surprised you slash did an animal subvert expectations? Emilette. 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 So cute. I love her. She doesn't necessarily subvert expectations or surprise us, but she's just our favorite. Yep. I want a little more of Emilette. The owls, though, did kind of subvert some expectations from the way that we've seen owls before. For the most part, we're not counting the one. We're not counting him. (laughs) (laughs) he's an outlier and should not be counted like even these guys are different from him um (laughs) grumpy george who lives by himself and complains about his gay boyfriend who won't come home (laughs) so like they they subverted expectations because owls have been shown to be like not necessarily vicious but just you know they're predators they're not like hawks and other raptors that we've seen but they're very much like aloof aloof or just 
They're predators. Like, I don't have better words for this. They're fucking predators. Mm -hmm. (laughs) How they work. So getting these ones that are scribes and map makers was like, oh, oh. Again, like, it it feels like all of a sudden we just popped into the gahool for a minute here. The owls are just straight up the good guys. Yeah, it's real good. Okay, Um, you know what it... So I'm also listening to another series again that I have. I read it back in high school. It's the Dragon Dragon Champion was the first one. Dragon Avenger. Um, hang on, no let me double check it. Um, hang on. It's the Ring or the Age of Fire series by E.E. E. Knight. I've never and, read that series. And in it, the dragons learn, like the dragons can speak certain animal speech by default. Like bird speak is the one that they can speak out of reflex. And in the second book I'm listening to, she's like the young Dragonelle. She's like, okay, some birds are incredibly stupid, but then, you know, the first intelligent bird she actually encounters a condor. Like the condors are depicted as being very refined, very, um, they, they try very hard to have pleasant manners. I love condors because they do actually have manners. Mm hmm. They have manners. They're very, very fastidious creatures. They're very clean. And mm-hmm. people, and so many things depict them as disgusting. Like, yes, there is that one species of old world vulture that barfs on itself to like, clean itself. And its stomach acid cleans its feet. <laughs> but yes, smart and polite owls. Yeah. What's your favorite part so far? Ah. Uh... Honestly, just that whole back and forth sequence. Um, oh, with the lightning attacks? Yes, that was so well written. I it enjoyed was. that so phenomenally. It was extremely well written. I, I I, want more of that in this. And I know we tip it. We, we really only get that level of writing when Brian gets into fighting. Exactly. Which and I'm is... like, eh. <laughs> Yeah, he definitely seems to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, all the rest of our questions are for the end of the book or later books. We didn't get any questions this time because we forgot to ask. Yeah, we've been <laughs> busy. Life we... life has been happening so much. Yep. So, um, thank you for listening to Abbey Archives. We are grateful that you lent us your ears and we hope you enjoyed your time with us. Uh, I have been Izzy. You can find me on Tumblr at Lots of Deer. Uh, you can find uh, the actual play podcast I do at Hope's Hearth Pod. Uh, again, Colchis is going to be coming out probably closer towards the end of summer, beginning of fall. We are running into uh, a few issues, but it's not anything major. Uh, and um, I feel a little ashamed to say this. I might be starting an SCP podcast. That's okay. I like there's only two SCP podcasts I've listened to that are actually like enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And one of them is literally just a guy very dryly and patiently reading out the SCPs and he just SCP I, I Foundation say, database? I think so. Yeah, it's like I love that even, one. Yeah, he's not even acting. Uh let me check out my podcast. He's not even acting. He there's just the one by the Bloody Disgusting uh, Network, uh which I believe is the I believe SCP Archives is uh, the one by Bloody Disgusting. And then there's SCP Foundation Database. Both of them have mixes of um, single reading and full voice acted episodes for different like uh, addendums and like uh, datas. And then there's SCP Reel to Reel. Okay, no, this one is called The Exploring Series and he doesn't just do SCPs. He also does like some episodes on the Cthulhu mythos, on Lord of the Rings, on um, basically he explores like really impactful stuff that's not even always just necessarily horror. Like I said, he'll do yeah. stuff on the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft and so on. But see, uh, he's here's got the some Warhammer stuff. To, here's the thing that we need to say podcast wise, I'm not talking about YouTube. I don't know about all the, there's so much SCP on YouTube, but podcast wise, the vast majority of ones where people are just reading the SCPs, the voices, are either like they're masculine or just deep voices yeah right yeah they're dudes or people with deep voices which is fine i am here to bring my higher pitched non-binary nonsense to the scp community 
Also, because reading them actually does very much help me with script reading, ad-libbing, and doing voice acting, which is the reason why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. And Dirk decided to jump in and be like, can I be the, 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 your boss? You're extremely <laughs> chipper, out-of-touch boss. And I'm like, yes. Uh, so it's very fun for both of us. Uh, so eh, I don't know what that's going to be called yet. Hey, uh, if I can ever cameo on there, I'd be happy to pop in. Absolutely. This one's easy. The script's already written. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yes, and I have been Kit. Uh, you can find me at Kitsy in a Box on Tumblr. Uh, Twitter for however long the hell site lasts now that it is imploding again because, you know, to date this recording, uh, Muskrat just rolled out the new Twitter blue disaster. He He removed check marks from so many celebrities and then gave them back. By paying for them out of his own pocket, because which they is illegal, by the way. And <laughs> Drill, you know, delightful shit poster Drill. Apparently, if you change your name on Twitter, the check mark goes away. So he is in a fight with whoever is being paid to put the check mark back, because he every he notices it almost immediately, changes his name, but then it takes like 10, 15, 20 minutes for someone to notice it's gone. Oh, it's delightful. It it's so it is funny. So, it's like, this that's the is, only reason I'm still on Twitter is I'm having so much fun watching just... It's such a fucking train wreck. It's so funny. Um, Nobody thought Tumblr would survive out of all the social medias, and yet somehow... We're still here. Somehow we are still here, and things are getting, like active again yeah um but yes um i do uh little dessert themed foxes called kits and days in fact the the scratching and tapping of my tablet you have heard today during today's recording if it picks it up (laughs) is me just doodling sorby for fun because i haven't been getting very many orders recently because i went full time and you know interest will wane and i don't mind that but i'm just drawing my sorby boy because i can I think some of it is also people are trying to respect the fact that you've started a new full-time job and we don't want to yeah. overwhelm you. Your community for the Kids Sundays is very, They're very so thoughtful good. that way. I love them so much. Yeah. Uh, so you can find us both at Abbey Archives on Tumblr and Reddit. Uh, please rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice. Please remember, we do no advertising for this because we don't have the money or the time to. The more people you tell about our podcast too, the more people will be able to listen to it. And if you rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, the more people will find us uh, organically. Um, Which is always great. We like people to come and listen to us. We don't want, like I've said before, we're not trying to make money off of this. We just want people to hear us. We just like talking about things we like. Exactly. Uh, Please remember, send us questions for the next stuff, things like that. (laughs) <laughs> or you can just send us questions about the series in general, previous books, etc. Anyway, uh, may your hearth be warm and your heart be merry from us to you at Redwall Abbey. Bye. Bye bye. on social media you can follow us on tumblr and reddit at abby archives and if you would like to help support this podcast you can find us on coffee at ko-fi.com 
forward slash HS Enclave. This podcast is part of Hearthside Enclave. And some other shows you might like are Hope's Hearth, a solar hope punk actual play podcast, and Post Apocalyptic News Radio, a Fallout inspired audio drama. <laughs>